Good morning, Mount Hope. It's so good to see everyone this beautiful morning. If we've not had a chance to meet, my name is Justin. I serve on the preaching and teaching here, team here at Mount Hope, often in Belmont, but so grateful to be here in Burlington once again to worship the Lord together with everyone that is here. Along, he saw a man Just take a second born. for that. You've already seen it. It's so good to be here in the house of God this morning with everyone. If you've been with us for the past couple of weeks, you know we've been in a sermon series that we call Sex by Design as we've been tackling some of the most important issues in our culture, some of the most important things that are being discussed throughout our world today. Over the last four weeks, we've discussed some very, very heavy topics, some topics that can be uncomfortable at times, some topics that can't be discussed completely during a 30 or 40 minute sermon. But at the very least, we as a church have made a decision to begin the conversation and to be a part of the conversation that's going on in the world around us. And this morning, that conversation continues, but it's going to continue in a slightly different way. While we've been talking about the heavy, heavy items of sexual sin and sexual addiction and the things that pervade our culture today, we get to talk about the grace of an amazing God this morning. We get to talk about the forgiveness and the presence of a God who loves us despite what we've done, despite how we've messed up, despite the baggage that we carry in our lives. And this morning, I am so thankful that I get to preach about this because, first of all, it's a lot easier to preach about grace than about the other stuff. But secondly, because I'm so thankful because without that grace, I couldn't even be here today. And I'm so grateful for that this morning. So if you have been with us this, this, this past couple of weeks, you understand that Sex by Design has been focused primarily on understanding the purpose and the intent of the designer, the purpose of God the creator. And we've been saying that if we understand the purpose of how God created us and why he created us, then we can understand the best way to use what he's given us. And that's the way we've been talking about this entire series. So this morning, if you decided, should I go to church or not, I'm so glad that you are here because today we are going to answer once and for all one of the most important questions that has ever faced our society, our world, that has ever faced humanity in in general. No, it has nothing to do with sex by design. Today we're going to answer the age-old question, is toilet paper supposed to be hung over or under? So, so clearly people have an opinion on this matter, don't they? Is toilet paper supposed to be hung over or under? It's an age-old question, one that gets debated constantly. Think about it. The internet and social media discuss this issue at length, maybe because the internet and social media have solved all the other problems in the world, so they've gone to this one. And people argue at great length about this specific issue. If you go back to the last slide there, John. We argue at great length about this specific issue. We argue, how do we solve this great problem? And so people have determined, and there's a lot of name-calling on the internet about this issue, by the way. One side is uncivilized, the other side is ignorant, and there's a lot of wondering, which way does it go? But very recently, a group of people on the internet, again, who have solved all the other major problems in the world, have determined that the correct way to understand how this should be hung has to be based on how it was originally designed. So what did they do? They went back to the patent office to find the original patent for toilet paper, to find out what was the design for this product. And the question was, if we can find out why it was designed or how it was designed, then we can figure out the age-old answer, how it should be hung. 
And for you this morning, I have the answer. Here is the patent. It's believed that it should be hung over. So, so give yourselves a big round of applause for solving one of the world's biggest problems. But because of this patent, many people decided and determined, because we determined the original design, we've determined the proper use for this product. Because we determined the original design, we've determined the proper use. Let, let me be honest with you. I don't have a horse in this fight because... I honestly don't care one way or the other which way it goes. Let's be honest. If I was not married, my toilet paper roll would probably look more like this. <laughs> T- today, my wife and I celebrate our seventh anniversary, our wedding anniversary is today. Uh, thank you. And I'm, I'm pretty sure we wouldn't have seen two, three, four, five, six, or seven if I didn't learn how to hang this properly. So <laughs> this is most likely what would happen. So I don't really care one way or the other, but... As a society, we've determined sometimes that if we can figure out the original design of something, the original intent and purpose of something, then we can determine the best way it's supposed to be used. And this morning and for the last couple of weeks, we have been trying to determine the original intent and design of our bodies, of our sexuality, of why God created us the way he decided to create us. And the sacred covenant that he joined a man and a woman into so that they can be fruitful and multiply and bless the earth that he created in that original intent, that original design. Just as anything that, ha- that is used by the creator has a design and a purpose, in God's design, the ultimate purpose of all things was that we would be in communion with him, that we would be unified to God. But then we started to use what was given to us in the improper way, and it separated us from God. Sin separated us from God. But God never forgot the original design, the original intent that we would be one. We would be unified with the Father, that we would be one with God. And so rather than letting the punishment fall on us for the sins that we had committed that separated us from God, God in his love took the punishment upon himself. He suffered the consequences of our sins so that we could be forgiven and unified back to him. And this morning, this is why we're here. This is what we're talking about. We are discussing the amazing forgiveness of God this morning, the amazing grace that is offered to us. The woman that you saw just a minute ago, the famous woman who is known as the woman caught in sin. It's amazing because that's not a title the Bible gave her. It's a title that theologians and folks who interpreted the word gave her, the woman caught in sin. But this morning, I want to share with you that that woman's past, that woman's present, and that woman's future were determined not by what she did, but by whom she came in contact with that day. It was not what she did in the past. It was not how she was condemned in the present. It was not what people determined her future should look like that ultimately decided the future of that woman. It was Jesus and what he decided would determine what was happening to that woman. So let me start with a little context of what's going on at the temple gates that day, at the temple courts that day. Jesus Christ, right after a feast called the Feast of Tabernacles, rises early in the morning and he goes to the temple to begin teaching. He's sitting down there on the steps and he's teaching people when suddenly the Pharisees, who were a group of people who did not care if the law was followed one way or the other, but cared far more if they could trap Jesus in what he was saying. 
So they rush this woman in and throw her down in front of Jesus and force her to stand before everyone publicly, and they determine their case against this woman. Teacher, we have caught this woman in the act of adultery, in the very act she was caught. Our law says that she should be stoned for what she did, but what do you say? There's a trap they're setting for Jesus. Let me give you a little context on the trap. If Jesus says that you should stone her, Jesus is going against the Roman government. Let me give you a little idea of why. The Roman government determined that the Jewish people could not execute someone without their approval. And if Jesus determined that she was to be stoned, then he was going against the Roman government. They could trap him there, saying that he was a a rebel rouser who was trying to bring anarchy into the government. But if Jesus also said, let her go... Don't punish her. He is going against the law of Moses. So either way, he's trapped. He's either going against the law of the Roman government or he's going against the law of Moses. Either way, it looks bad. I'm so grateful for a God who finds another way. He finds another way in the midst of what man thinks is the trap that is set against us. And God finds another way. Her past was forgiven. Her past was forgiven. Let me give you a little more context on what's happening there. The book of Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 22 says, If a man is found sleeping with another man's wife, both the man who slept with her and the woman must die. You must purge the evil from Israel. It's very harsh. Leviticus chapter 20 says, If a man commits adultery with another man's wife, with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress must be put to death. Very, very harsh law. It's very tough for us to sometimes in 21st century New England to completely understand what's going on, and we don't really have the time to explain it in depth. But that's the standard. That was the law that Jesus had to work with that day. But in the middle of that, Jesus finds another way. Because here's what's going on. The Pharisees who bring the woman, it's not because they love the law that they brought the woman. It's because they hate Jesus that they brought the woman. They want to question Jesus and trap him, so they bring this woman before him. What does the law say? The law says that if someone is caught in adultery, who has to come forward? The man and the woman. The adulterer and the adulteress have to come forward to receive punishment. Who's coming forward in this case? It's just the woman. Where's the man in this situation? You see, when Jesus saw the situation, and they were so, so passionate about the law, but it was clear they were not even following the letter of the law. The letter of the law was both had to be brought in front of the temple courts for judgment. They were not following the law, so Jesus swiftly points out to them that, are you sure you want to be held to the letter of the law? And little by little, the men drop their stones and they walk away because Jesus is declaring her past is forgiven. I don't know if you guys have ever received a little white card in the mail with this, and it's not a Christmas card, it's actually probably the opposite. It says, you have been summoned for jury duty. (laughs) So that little card comes in the mail, and most of us, what happens? We get extremely upset that, oh, it's that time of the 10 years that I have to go and do this now, and we get upset. To be honest, I don't really get that upset. I look at it as uh, missing work and placing judgment on someone else. Sign me up. I'm right there. (laughs) So... Truth be told, I do get annoyed too when the little jury jury duty uh, letter comes in. But 
The thing is that when you, uh, when you go into jury duty, they, what do they do? They bring you into a room, and then they see if you are fit to sit on a jury of a trial that's happening that day. Now, I've been called to jury duty twice, and both times I've sat on the actual jury that I was called to. And both times I was faced with a very, very serious crime. The first time was a domestic violence issue where a man was caught actually striking and assaulting his, his girlfriend. The second time was an issue, a very, very terrible crime, where a man was communicating online with another person who he thought was an underage child, and he was trying to lure her into some sort of sexual act, but what ended up happening was he was actually communicating with an undercover FBI officer. Both times I sat on the jury, and both times I sat there and listened to incredible evidence against the defendant, both times. In the domestic violence case, the police officer who was called to the situation actually saw the striking of the man on the woman, actually witnessed it happening. In the second case, in the the case where the man is trying to communicate with an underage child, There were thousands of pages of internet chats that we as a jury were allowed to read and go through to see how guilty this person was. But you know the interesting thing is in both cases we found out after the fact that the defense attorney actually tried before the case to have the case dismissed. It's kind of interesting, right? Before the case even started, the defense attorney went to the judge and said, look, I don't think there's enough evidence here. I don't think there's a right reason for a case here. Or this little minute problem happened. Or there was this one small change in in paperwork. This case should not go forward. And both times they thought they had the audacity to walk up to a judge, even though there were mountains of evidence to say, we should dismiss this case. And thankfully, neither case was dismissed. Thankfully, both people were found guilty in that specific case. But here's what happens here. There is a mountain of evidence, and yet someone is trying to get the case dismissed. In the same way, this woman is brought before Jesus with a mountain of evidence, supposedly, against her. And yet Jesus does not condemn her for what she did. My friends, this is the story of your life and my life. Sometimes I like to be the person in the jury box. Sometimes I like to be the judge. But the truth is, I am the defendant in every one of these cases. I am a sinner that was bought with a very, very precious price, the blood of Jesus Christ. And each one of us come here this morning not as perfect people. In fact, there's not one in this room today. But we come before a perfect Lord and we say, God, I am sorry for what I've done I do not want to live this way any longer. I need your grace. And there is Jesus in his perfect love pouring that grace upon us, lavishing us with that grace because the original intent and design was that man and God would be together. And when man decided to break the original intent, it was God who came down and helped man and rescued him. For all of us this morning, this is what our prayer should be. God, I want to return back to the original intent and design. I want to go back to the original intent and design. Because there are two words that we throw around a lot, grace and mercy. And if you're not familiar with those words or if you're new here today, maybe this is a chance to learn what those words actually mean. Grace is a word we use to describe something, a blessing, a reward, a benefit that we receive that we did not deserve. But mercy is receiving or is not receiving a punishment that we did deserve. Let me say that again. Grace is when we receive a blessing that we did not deserve. 
And mercy is when we do not receive the punishment that we did deserve. And this morning, Jesus Christ pours out grace and mercy upon us all. He pours it out upon us. I want you to get a picture of what that woman was about to go through when you, when you saw the situation she was in. Now, it wouldn't have happened at this time unless the Romans authorized it. But if she was going to be stoned to death, I want you to understand, it's a word that gets thrown around in the Bible a lot so we forget the real intense nature of it. Stoning was a horrendous form of death. It was not a simple, little, quick thing. It was not fast. A person would be buried up to their waist in the dirt. Their hands would be tied behind their backs. Large stones would be hurled at amazing speeds at their face and their head until blunt force trauma killed them. And it was in that situation that Jesus stepped in and said, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. And when each stone drops, he turns to that woman and he says, woman, where are they who have accused you? Are they all gone? Where are they? And she replies, no one is left, sir. And Jesus says, then neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Think about what she escaped that day. It wasn't a traffic ticket that she escaped that day. But Jesus pours that out upon every one of us this morning. That we who were worthy of a brutal, horrendous punishment for what we did, whether it was sexually, whether it was in our mind, whether it was what, what we saw, with what we sang, with what we did, with what we said, with what we thought, every part of us deserved that sort of a punishment. And Jesus steps in and says, then neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. So her past was forgiven. Her past was forgiven. If anyone is sitting here this morning and you are struggling with your past this morning, if you have baggage from the days gone by that you are still carrying with you and you are letting that define you this morning, the words of Jesus to you this morning, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Do not let the past define who you are. The past does not have power over us when we are in Christ. In fact, the Bible says if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed, and behold, all things are new. This is what we are promised in Jesus Christ. Now, if her past was forgiven, there's a second thing that happens to this woman. There is no condemnation in the present. Jesus says, neither do I condemn you now. So these men could not condemn you a couple of minutes ago. Neither do I condemn you right now. Jesus offers forgiveness for the condemnation that she feels right now. For just a few seconds, I want to talk about one of the most troubling and pressing issues that affect most of us, I would say, in our world today. And it's a word, that word is guilt. The guilt of our sins, the guilt of the things that we may have done last night before we came here this morning. That guilt sometimes overwhelms us, guilt sometimes presses us and crushes us because of guilt. So many of us cannot move forward in our walk with God because of th things we've done in the past, things we're doing right now, the life of sin that we have now. But even there, Jesus' words, neither do I condemn you, go and sin no more. Some of us really need to hear it this morning. That if you struggle with guilt this morning, there is a Savior who desires to forgive you. Let me say that again. 
You do not need to pry forgiveness from Jesus. You do not need to beg and plead for forgiveness from Jesus. He desires to give you forgiveness. He longs to forgive you because he longs to be with you, to be in relationship with you. There is a very important caveat at the end of that statement, which I'll get to. But the key here is that guilt should not control our lives any longer because of what Jesus did on the cross for us. There's a song we sing like this. How great the pain of searing loss. The father turns his face away as wounds which marred the chosen one bring many sons to glory. That song continues. Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer. But this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. It's not the size of your sin that hinders God from forgiving you. It's not how magnificent that sin was or how incredible it was or how many people it hurt that keeps God's grace from you. It is only your heart that keeps God's grace from blessing your life. And some of us, we struggle so much with guilt and we let guilt overrule us that we cannot let God come in and bless our hearts and change our hearts because we struggle so much with, with the need for forgiveness. Legally speaking, Moses, he was guilty of murder. Legally speaking, David was, was guilty of adultery. He was guilty of conspiracy. Paul was guilty of persecuting followers of Christ. But here's the best part. They were used more for God after those sins, after those things that they had done in their lives. Every one of those men who were the mighty men of God we read about in the Bible, the mighty people of God, they were used more after they received forgiveness from an incredible sin that they had committed. This is what we call radical forgiveness that Jesus gives us. Radical forgiveness that we can break our heart before God, come before him with full and free access to say, God, Father, I need your forgiveness. That's what radical forgiveness looks like. You may have been watching the news this past week and seen the story of a pastor in Indiana who had to endure one of the most troubling, troubling things that you've ever seen, where criminals broke into his home, and while his, while his pregnant wife and toddler son were living in that home, came in and assaulted and killed his wife while she's carrying her baby and killed the child as well. Horrendous, horrendous thing that happened. And this past week, that pastor was interviewed by a couple of stations and the news stations across the world. And the pastor's response was, I will not let hate rule me because of the God who lives in me. I forgive the person who did this. The same week that his wife was murdered, the same week that his unborn child was murdered, he goes before the world and says, I forgive that person. That's radical forgiveness. That's forgiveness that a person who knows Christ can offer because they understand what Christ has given them. There are so many great examples of that. We don't have the time to go into all of them, but Corey Tenboom was a very famous uh, survivor of the Holocaust, a Christian survivor of the Holocaust who rescued many lives, went to a concentration camp herself, watched her family get murdered one by one, And the day before she is to be executed herself, she is miraculously released from one of the prisons. She comes in contact later in her life with the guard who actually killed her sister and simply says, I forgive you. That's radical forgiveness. Radical forgiveness that's easy to understand when you understand what's been given to you. In 2006, A horrendous incident took place when a shooter walked into an Amish schoolhouse and started shooting children as they were learning in school. 
And you may have remembered that story that right after the entire incident happened at the funeral of the shooter himself, when he died in the incident himself, the funeral of the incident, of the, of the shooter, the members of the Amish community walked into that funeral and embraced the wife as she was sitting there and sat with her, financially supported her for years after the fact, because they said, we forgive you. Radical forgiveness, when you understand the love of Christ, it's easy to pour out on others. Immaculate Ilibagiza was a young girl that was living in an African nation known as Rwanda. Immaculate was just your average typical young girl except that she was living in Rwanda in 1994 when a massive genocide was about to take place. Immaculate, she decided to get up and, and, and run as fast as she can, but as she was about to leave, as the genocide is beginning, as the murders are beginning, she and her younger brother decide to flee from their home after, right after as they're leaving, her parents are both murdered in front of her. Immaculate and her brother run to the home of a nearby pastor, a pastor who's actually on the other side of the war, on the other tribe, walks into his home and he hides her inside of a bathroom inside of their home. He cannot hide the brother too because there are too many people cramped in the bathroom. The brother leaves, he's killed. Immaculate hides in a bathroom, and I need to show you this. She hides in a bathroom with a length of this much. This is how big the bathroom was. Oh, and by the way, there are eight other women in the bathroom with her. For three months, they hide in that bathroom. In a bathroom that is one square meter, they hide in that bathroom for three months. Each of them lose close to 50 pounds while they're sitting in that bathroom for three months. Through the house, they can hear the killing of their own family members. Immaculate eventually escapes, eventually survives the genocide, eventually writes a book. But here's the best part. She also meets one of the killers of her own family members and says, I forgive you because Jesus forgave me. This is radical forgiveness. This is radical grace. And these humans who did it, they did an amazing thing when they did it. But my friends, don't forget for a second, these are sinful humans who forgave sinful people. But Jesus was a perfect God who forgave sinful people. He went on a cross himself and took the punishment for us so that we don't have to live with guilt any longer, so that we don't have to live with the bondage and the chains of sin any longer. It is a free gift that is offered to you this morning, that you do not need to live that way anymore. You are not shackled by the chains of your past. You're not shackled by the bondage of sin anymore because Jesus paid it all on a cross. And by his blood, we are forgiven. This is the great preposition, proposition that is placed before each of us this morning. This is the great thing that Jesus did for us. Legend says that in the past, in the ancient Near East and in, far, in the Far East, there were many kings who would go to battle, and they would go up and face another large army, and sometimes kings would handpick one or two soldiers from their armies to run and dive off of a cliff or run and kill themselves because the king told them to. The idea was... That if I, as a king, can show my power and how dedicated my soldiers are, they are willing to die for me, then this other army will just pack it up and forfeit this battle. 
This is the history of this world that soldiers were willing to die for their king, but here is the story of the gospel. The king was willing to die for us. That's the difference. Hallelujah. For so many of us, this is the part that's so hard to understand. The song we sing, Amazing Love, how can it be that you, my king, would die for me? He switched places. He took our place on that cross and he poured out forgiveness in a radical and lavish way. I just want to read a couple of verses about that forgiveness just so we could understand how deep and how wide that grace that is poured out to each of us. 1 John 1 verse 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Isaiah chapter 1 verse 18 says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Isaiah 55 says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. It is not the size of your sin that matters to God. It is your heart. He wants to abundantly pardon us today. Psalm 103 says, The Lord is merciful and gracious. He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. I love this part. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgression from us. As far as the east is from the west, that means there is no way we could ever see that sin again because he has removed it from us that far. The Greek word for forgive is a word aphemi, which means to send away. It means to depart or to yield up, which means that any sin that I've committed has been sent away from me. It's not a, let me call it back, and I will remember it, and I will not forget what this child of mine has done. It is, I have sent it away. As far as the east is from the west, so far have I removed your transgressions from you. Ephesians 1 verses 7 through 10 says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Again, we often think that forgiveness is something we need to pry from God because he hates me in the midst of my sinful ways. But we need to be reminded that ever since Eden, forgiveness has been a part of God's master plan. Forgiveness and grace is available. One of my favorite verses in all of scripture is found in Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 to 15. Oftentimes when I find myself struggling with guilt or dealing with issues that, that affect me, especially when it comes to sin, I remember when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, 
God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He took them away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Amazing, amazing stuff. That we who did not deserve forgiveness were lavished forgiveness. We were made alive in Christ. You and I should have been like that woman, dragged publicly before God and told, told all of our sins out in public and made to look like a shameful person. But this morning, the story does not end. The two options the Pharisees present are not the only two options. God makes another way. He forgives her past. He does not condemn her present. And thank God that he gives her hope for her future as well. There is hope for our future. He tells her these simple words, Go and sin no more. Leave your life of sin. Because she recognizes the high price of her forgiveness, because she does not have to live with the guilt, she has a future. However, let's take a look at the other people in this story, the Pharisees in this story. What about them? They don't recognize their sin. They don't see the roadblock they have put between God and people. They don't recognize it. And for the next couple of minutes, I just want to address this part of this forgiveness issue, this part of grace. And this is the part where the church shows grace to others, where the church is the beacon of grace for those who are struggling in their sins and in their difficulties. I want to ask you a question. Is it harder for a person to encounter the grace of Christ by our actions? Is it harder for a person to encounter the grace of Jesus this morning by our actions and our words? Let's be honest. This is a situation the church has struggled with for a long time. Not every church, but many, many different churches around the world have struggled with this. That people come in with their heartbreaks and their, their brokenness, and we send them out feeling worse because they walked into our doors that we make them feel more challenged, we make them feel farther from God because of what we say. Because a lot of times, we focus on truth without focusing on love. Now, these are not mutual things. These are not exclusive. These are not exclusive from each other. These work together. They are mutual. They are truth and love go hand in hand. Watch how Jesus deals with that woman. It's not truth or love. He gives truth and love. And he brings them together to take care of that woman. It's compassion without compromise. It's compassion for the woman, but at the same time, truth comes into the situation as well. Compassion without compromise, truth with love. And the problem is so often we have truth people and we have love people. Isn't that right? Sometimes we have truth people and sometimes we have love people. Truth people tell the truth about everything. They are direct with their words. They will call fire and brimstone in any situation because they know the truth. They're truth people. Every problem can be fixed with a sledgehammer. Even if it's a little nail that's sticking out, we need a sledgehammer to fix it. These are truth people. People who always use the truth to make sure that we deal with every situation. Those are truth people. And what happens when we come across folks who are struggling in sin, especially if it's sexual sin or if it's any sort of sexual addiction or any problems that are going on in their lives? What happens when a coworker 
who, who's gay says that he's going to get married to his partner next week? Do we immediately jump up and say, you know, God made Adam and Eve and not Adam and Steve? Do we judge using our truth first? What happens when someone comes up to us and says, hey, my grandmother just passed away, and you go to the funeral and you say, oh, too bad your grandmother never accepted Jesus Christ. She's going to hell. Do we use truth instead of love? Because truth says that we have to fix everything with a sledgehammer. But then there's the other side to that problem as well, the love people. And there's probably plenty of love people here too. Love people say we've got to accept everything. We've got to be affirming with everything. We've got to let everything happen because that's the way Jesus would love us. It's either truth or love for many of us. Imagine a doctor who refuses to give your real diagnosis because she's afraid of hurting your feelings. Imagine what that would be like. It's either truth or love for many in the church, but Christ gives us the perfect example. He uses truth and love together. He does not call the woman's issue a preference. He doesn't call it an alternative lifestyle. He doesn't call it a a tendency. He calls it sin. Go and sin no more. He gives her the truth, but he also gives her love. Woman, where are they? We should stop there for a second. He calls her woman. I want you to understand in the context there, that is not an insult. I know in our terms, if I called someone woman, it would come across as a little brash, a little, a little abrasive. But in Jesus' terms, if he's using the word woman, I want you to understand he is returning her dignity back to her. He is showing her how much he loves her. The word woman, Jesus does use it in other phrases. Do you know who he calls woman? His mother. Because he loves this woman. He says, woman, to to Mary, behold your sons. Or woman, and, and he uses different references to talk about Mary as a woman. And here he brings this woman who has been caught in sin and says, woman, as in I love you, I'm returning your dignity back to you. And then he deals with her sin. There is truth and love working together. So how do we do this? How do we live the truth in love every single day? How do we speak the truth in love? I want to use a small acronym to help us understand what this could look like. The L in love stands for to listen. This is something that you and I are called to do when our friends, when our loved ones come with, to us with their sins and their struggles and their issues. Rather than jumping into scripture, rather than jumping into condemnation and judgment, can we take a minute and just listen to them? Their hearts are breaking sometimes and we're so quick with the answer before they finish the question that we're unable to show grace into their lives. And this morning, this is an opportunity for us to just listen. Do you know the friend, the coworker, the, the classmate that needs to hear about Christ from you will often come to you not with questions about salvation. They'll come and tell you about things they're going through in life right now, and they just need you to be there to listen to them. So how do we speak the truth in love? Number one, listen to people. Be a source of encouragement there. O would be to offer support. Again, we're not starting with scripture here. Scripture is so fundamentally important, but that's not where we start. We start with a foundation of listening and support. You tell that person, I will be there for you. I will pray with you through this entire ordeal. Whatever you're going through, I am going to be there for you. I will not leave you till this is done. And you invest in that person. You offer support to that person. And then there's V. Voice God's truth. Voice God's truth. 
Let me be clear on this. Scripture is a savior. Scripture is a way for us to teach the truth of God to other people. But maybe it's from Scripture, maybe it's from your experiences, but voice God's truth in the situation and don't be afraid to do it. But do it with love. Do it with compassion for what they're going through. Voice God's truth and watch your tone when you do it. Watch your body language when you do it. Oftentimes we forget how we sound when we say something. But God calls us to speak truth in love, voice God's truth, but voice it using the love that God would have used to you and to me. Voice God's truth. The E simply says esteem. Return esteem. Return the way that God sees them back to them. Oftentimes when people are struggling with addictions and sins, oftentimes guilt overwhelms them and they lose the self-esteem, the worth that God intrinsically placed in them. Let's not forget the book of Genesis as Pastor Rick talked about it last week. He said that we are created in God's image. If we are created in his image, then we have the worth, the value of God inside of us. But when we struggle with sin, we don't feel like we have that worth. We don't feel like we have that esteem. Return esteem back to the people that we deal with, that we talk to. Because we have to keep in mind what is the end goal. Is it to win arguments or is it to win souls? Because oftentimes we're so focused, and I know I do this. I want to win arguments. I see people on the internet, see people at work, people in my classroom who are constantly using the the word intolerance or tolerance to show their own intolerance. And I see it all the time, and I want to lash out. I want to give them every little one-liner and zinger I can think of. But then I think back to this, how would Christ have dealt with those people? He would have spoke the truth in love. My friends, we're not here to win arguments. We're here to win souls. And that's the way we have to look at it. As we come upon the end of our service this morning, I want us to keep a couple of things in mind. Jesus was candid with everyone. He was telling the truth to everyone. Jesus was confrontational with hypocrites. So he wasn't confrontational with the woman. He was confrontational with those who did not realize they were living in sin. And Jesus was compassionate with sinners. And we have to keep these three things in mind. That woman's past was forgiven. That woman's guilt and condemnation was no longer necessary. And that woman had a future and a hope because of what Jesus did. This morning I have some questions for you that we all need to wrestle with. I will be honest about this again. These are not issues that we can just figure out from a person standing up here and preaching. These are issues that we have to be thinking about, working through, dealing with together. Our pastors, our staff is always available to talk these things through. If you'd like to, we're always available. We encourage it because we need to be a part of this conversation. We cannot let the world dictate this conversation. We must be a part of it. So we have to ask ourselves, how do we deal with a friend or a family member who's been cheating, who has not been faithful in his marriage or her marriage? How do we deal with that? Maybe some of us are struggling with that right now. How do we deal with that? We speak the truth in love. How do we deal with the the family member or friend or, or, or ourselves who are dealing with sexual addictions, addictions to the internet and pornography, addictions to things that are going on in the world around us that we don't want to talk publicly about? Can we speak the truth in love to that person? How do we treat people in our churches that we clearly differ from in opinions or in theology? How do we handle them? Do we just immediately say, no, you don't have a place here, go somewhere else? Or do we speak the truth in love? How do we deal with those who are of a different sexual orientation or believe the, it's okay to practice such orientations? What do we do then? 
What do we do when a friend or a family member comes to you and says, I'm gay or I'm transgender? What do we say in that moment? Do we condemn them? Do we completely voice God's truth with a sledgehammer and forget to love them the way that Jesus loved that woman? You and I are called to voice God's truth, but you and I are called to speak truth in love. How do we engage with culture without being judgmental and hostile? How do we make sure that we are showing the love that Jesus showed to us? And this is the question that each of us have to work through and think about as we go forward. Again, it's not about winning arguments. It's about winning souls. And we're not going to argue people into the kingdom that easily. It can happen, but it's rare It's few and far between. We need to love them into the kingdom. And that's our call this morning. I'm going to invite our worship team to come back up this morning. There are two propositions that have been laid out for each one of us, including myself, this morning. Two propositions. If I have come here this morning, or if you have come here this morning with some sort of sin, some sort of baggage from your past, some sort of hurt or worry from your life that you are still carrying... I want you to know that there is forgiveness in this house this morning. There is redemption, there is healing, there is deliverance in this place this morning. You do not have to carry those bags any longer. You do not have to walk around keeping the past on your back as you've always been doing. This morning, Jesus, with his arms wide open, is welcoming you into the family is saying you have been bought with too precious a price for you to go around carrying bags that I already took care of 2,000 years ago on Calvary. You do not need to carry them any longer. And there's a second proposition for some of us who are sitting here who are struggling with how do we deal with our friends? How do we deal with our coworkers? How do we deal with our church friends who may be going through these issues right now and I need to be the voice of God, this voice of truth, but I need to do it in love in that person's life. How do I do that? If you find yourself in either one of those boats this morning, I want you to understand these altars are open for you this morning. This is a place of healing. This is a place of redemption, a place of forgiveness, a place of reconciliation back to God this morning. So let's all close our eyes and bow our heads in the presence of God this morning. And as our worship team leads us in singing and in worship this morning, this altar is open to you. If there is something you need to confess before the Lord, there's an opportunity to do that here this morning. If you need repentance, if you need salvation, if you need to accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, there's a place here for you. There are pastors and and elders and leaders available to pray with you. And if you need to just pray for someone else, a person in your life that you need to get through to, you need to speak truth and love to. There's a place here this morning for you to pray for them as well. I'm going to pray for us. Jason and the team are going to lead us in worship. And this place is open for us to worship together and to pray to God together for forgiveness. Heavenly Father, we thank you because we can come and call you Heavenly Father. Because by the death of Jesus Christ on a cross and the brutal murder that he experienced, because of the torture that he went through, because of the blood that was shed on Calvary, I have access to grace that I never deserved. I've been spared a punishment that was far too horrendous to even imagine because Jesus took it upon himself for me. And this morning, Lord, I come before you with my own sins and my own blackened heart 
And I pray for every one of my brothers and sisters that are in this room right now as well, Lord. Just as you had mercy on that woman, just as you showered grace upon that woman in the temple courts that day, just as you returned dignity to her that day, I ask your forgiveness upon myself and for every heart who needs to see the guilt removed from their lives. I pray for forgiveness. I pray for peace. I pray for a separation of sin that it will be removed from us as far as the east is from the west, as far above the heavens are above the earth. So great is your love to us, Lord Jesus. We thank you for your presence here this morning. I ask that you would take glory and honor in our lives. Help us to live out the proposition to go and sin no more. We thank you for your presence. We thank you for your mercy here this morning. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.